You're listening to The Dworkin Report, and I just wanted to give you an update. We're releasing shows twice a week now on Mondays and Thursdays at 5 a.m. If you want to listen to them ad-free, then we've got new subscriptions through Apple and your podcast app. Your support means everything to me and the whole team. Onward to the show. You're listening to The Dworkin Report, and I'm your host, Scott Dworkin. On today's pod, we've got a very special guest, the Washington Post Deputy National Editor, Philip Rucker. He co-authored the amazing book, I Alone Can Fix It, Donald Trump's Catastrophic Final Year, with the Post's incomparable investigative reporter, Carol Lennig. This is more than a book. It's the second draft of history as told by two of America's foremost finders of fact. We only found out about the alarm bells ringing in the highest ranks of our armed services because of this book. Ditto for the crucial role Vice President Mike Pence played in preserving democracy in America. Philip shared some of the inside details of how this kind of long-form writing takes shape, including his trip inside Mar-a-Lago to interview Trump, who generally only gives interviews to right-wing media sources, which they managed after the stunning coup attempt. This kind of reporting especially on the first time in American history that a president refused to participate in the peaceful transfer of power, is both revealing and terrifying. But without dogged journalists like Philip Rucker and Carol Linnig and book publishers bankrolling these longer nonfiction works, then the public will be left mostly in the dark about the major events of our times. And as their newspaper proclaims atop each page, that is where democracy dies. Take a listen. I'm here with Pulitzer Prize winner Phil Rucker, who along with fellow winner Carol Lennig, wrote the book I Alone Can Fix It about 2020, the disastrous final year of the Trump presidency. Phil, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you? Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. The book is uh, amazing. I, I mean, uh, oh, thank the you. book you wrote with Carol, it says in the beginning, it's a work of uh, objective journalism. Can you explain to our audience what that means? Well, it means that this is reporting. It, it's not a polemic. Uh, it's not opinion. Uh, we're not telling you what to think. We're arming you with facts. And what Carol and I did in in writing this book is an extension of what we do every day as Washington Post journalists, which is an incredible amount of research and reporting and interviews with firsthand witnesses and, and sources. And then we compile and contextualize all of that new information uh, in a narrative. And, and I Alone Can Fix It opens at the very beginning of the year 2020 when the COVID pandemic uh, arrives and it ends with Joe Biden's inauguration on January 20th of 2021. And it takes you through uh, behind the scenes through Trump's handling of that entire final year as president. And, and by the way, we interviewed more than 140 sources for this book. Those are cabinet members, senior administration officials, advisors to Trump, family members of Trump, and, and other people who were witnesses to a lot of the moments that we describe in the book. And we also sat down with Trump himself. Uh, for two hours and 45 minutes down at Mar-a-Lago uh, for an interview, an extended interview, uh, to make sure we had his perspective and point of view uh, for our book. If you could 
describe to our listeners just exactly that meeting? Um, it's so quirky, I guess is is the word. But like, why why was it where it was? And uh, can you tell us tell us about that interview? Yeah. So you know, Trump invited us down. It was at the end of March of 2021. So you know, two months after he had left office, and he was at his club at Mar-a-Lago down in Palm Beach, Florida, and he decided to do the interview in the lobby of Mar-a-Lago. You know, this is a serious interview, right? We're talking right. about what he did as president, about the coronavirus pandemic, about the election. And he did it in the lobby uh, right before the dinner hour. So different club members were streaming in and out uh, to, to go to their tables out on the patio for dinner and waving hello to Trump and stopping by to say hi. And, you know, the, the Mar-a-Lago workers were actually setting up the buffet dinner all around us. So, you know, we're talking about <laughs> about Trump contesting the election and uh, the gentleman setting up the raw bar uh, <laughs> with the bed of ice and, and shrimp and oysters was, you know, right over Trump's shoulder getting ready for dinner. So it was quite a wild scene. And then in terms of the substance of, of what Trump had to say, Carol and I were just blown away by how fixated he remains on the election results and his continual uh, continuation, rather, of the lie that he won and that it was stolen. There, of course, is no evidence to support that. But it was, you know, listening to Trump, it was like clear to us that he lives in this alternate reality where he has somehow convinced himself of these fraud allegations and conspiracies that just don't add up when you look at what the hard evidence show. I'm just curious, why, why do you think Trump is so eager to talk to you and Carol and, and to others, you know, from Washington Post, New York Times. I mean, a lot of times he he's lies during interviews or he does something that stands out and it just totally throws him off base. Like, why is he still willing to talk to you? Does he think he's going to outsmart or outplay or trick you into doing doing a good article because based off lies or something? Like, I don't understand why he's willing to talk to you at all. He initially, when we wrote our first book, A Very Stable Genius, which covered the first three years of the presidency, Trump declined an interview request. He, he didn't want to talk to us. But for the second book, he did. And I think, you know, I think he decided, first of all, that the book was going to be a serious book and was going to be widely read by a lot of people. And so he wanted to have a hand in trying to curate uh, what we would say in the book. I think he also had an outsized view of his ability to persuade. I mean, he thought that if he could sit down with us and get us in that room, uh, he would be able to convince us to see the world the way he does. And, you know, that's not how journalism works. And that's not the kind of journalist that Carol and I are. Like, we're pretty hard-nosed and tough, and, you know, we're not going to be easily played, but he didn't know that. I also think, frankly, he missed the interactions with reporters. Remember, when he was president, he would talk to reporters multiple times a day, uh, oftentimes, you know, under the wing of the airplane or, you know, as he's boarding the helicopter or, you know, coming into the Oval Office to shout questions. But he doesn't have any of that give and take anymore. So the opportunity to have uh, some reporters fly down to Florida and spend some time with him, I, I think was just something that he, he couldn't pass up. It's fascinating. On a more serious note, uh, we heard earth-shattering testimony from police officers who repelled a sedition mob from the Capitol. You wrote that General Milley compared Trump's efforts to Hitler's Reichstag fire that led to his evil rule. Based on your reporting, and just curious on your opinion, how much involvement do you think the White House had in planning or aiding the January 6th uh, Stop the Steal rally that turned into an insurrection versus Donald Trump himself personally being involved in planning? That's such an important question. Carol and I, in our reporting, were not able to determine exactly 
whether Trump or any of his allies or aides in the White House had a direct hand in planning the riots and planning the violence that occurred. Certainly, they had a direct role in planning the rally that was at, on the ellipse outside the White House the morning of January 6th. And, and Trump obviously played a huge role in trying to draw people to Washington, telling his supporters to come to Washington that day. But we don't know specifically the degree to which there was a plan to actually lay siege to the Capitol and what kind of knowledge the president had about it. Do you think that he, when he saw it, do you think that he wanted there to be violence to stall or anything to stall? Or do you think he was enjoying it? What do you think he thought about the January 6th riot when it, after the rally, after the rally, that is? We know from our reporting in the book that he enjoyed what he saw and that Trump was watching it all unfold on television and sat in the little private dining room just outside the Oval Office with the TV on, transfixed by the images. He liked seeing thousands of his supporters storming the steps of the Capitol. He liked seeing them waving Trump flags. He liked seeing them with those red Make America Great Again hats on. Uh, He he thought this is a powerful show of force by my supporters to defy the election results, and he enjoyed it. And it wasn't until things became violent and lethal even, lives were lost, that Trump realized that this was dangerous and needed to be stopped. And yet he still needed to be persuaded by his advisors over the course of multiple hours by Ivanka Trump, his daughter, by Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, to issue that statement telling his supporters uh, to stand down and to go home. And, you know, we also learned in our reporting that at the same time, Trump was abdicating his duty as commander in chief. So one of the government's most important buildings, the Capitol, was under siege. That's a crisis for America. And the president didn't do anything in the immediate moment to try to contain the crisis and to try to create or deploy rather a federal response. It was actually Vice President Pence who was getting on the phone with the Pentagon to make sure the National Guard were on the way and to make sure troops were coming to the Capitol to help secure it and to make sure that there was a federal law enforcement presence to assist the Capitol police who were obviously besieged and beleaguered. Pence was the one who fulfilled those presidential duties that day, in large part because Trump was AWOL. He was too busy watching the television. Oh, geez. Uh, um, I guess we'll we'll move into COVID uh, here. As an objective, factual book, what's your readers take away when you write that the former president was, quote-unquote, delusional responding to a deadly public health disaster? Well, the one guiding principle for Trump throughout the COVID pandemic was his political fortunes. He was fixated on November 3rd, election day, and making sure that he would be popular, that that he would be in good standing for the election. And so at every turn on every day uh, during the coronavirus response, Trump was making decisions based on politics, not based on science, not based on how to save lives, not based on how to level with the American people but based on how to help himself politically. And so he calculated early on that the way to help himself politically was to convince people that the virus wasn't as bad or as dangerous or as lethal as they might think. So he he did a lot of happy talk. And and we remember this because we saw these briefings every day on television played out in public. Then he started to advocate for the magical cure-alls, hydroxychloroquine, the one day when he said people should inject bleach into their bodies. You know, then he tried to pressure the FDA uh, and and other science scientists to develop and approve a vaccine uh, faster 
than may have been necessarily safe because he wanted to get a vaccine approved before the election, thinking it would be able to it would be something that he could claim credit for. And then he tried to discredit the scientists, you know, making fun of Dr. Fauci, trying to turn Fauci into a punching bag for his political base. And it continued on and on and on, sort of these political tactics and political calculations. But those were the, that was the wrong mindset to have in the middle of a health uh, crisis. And, and that's not our opinion. That's the judgment of the people who worked with Trump uh, in, in leading the response. And is there were there people in the White House who thought that Trump was a success in fighting COVID and in the reverse? Is there anyone who admitted that they failed in their, their COVID response that he could have done better? You know, a, a lot of people in the White House give Trump credit, and I think they're right here. He deserves some credit for applying some heat uh, at the FDA to get the vaccine kind of developed and approved and tested on a much faster timetable than might have otherwise been expected. You know, the vaccines came on online quickly and uh, and that's in its own way sort of a miracle. And, and Trump drove a lot of that. And so he gets credit for that. But, you know, there are very few defenders of, of Trump's handling of the pandemic overall or of other elements of his of his management. And it became very clear to those who were helping him in the pandemic that he simply didn't have the toolkit uh, that was necessary to help guide the country through a crisis of that magnitude. Right. And, and uh, switching gears, one of the most important revelations from your book is kind of a internal monologue of the former Trump administration. In many ways, uh, your book, I Alone Can Fix It, establishes who knew what and when. Uh, how much of that was your focus of your reporting? And just curiosity, how much would you say post-legend Bob Woodward's style of writing influenced your book? Well, it certainly was uh, something that we cared a lot about in doing the reporting. You know, we wanted to take readers behind the scenes. We, uh, Carol and I, have covered this presidency in different ways, uh, but in real time for the Washington Post. And, you know, with the book, we wanted to do a deeper excavation and really unearth not only new information about what happened, but deeper context dialogue. We wanted to know when the president was meeting with his cabinet, what was everybody saying around the table specifically? Uh, what were people writing in their diaries? What were people remembering um, from these moments? This was history. Uh, the year 2020 was a year like none other. We all lived it, right? Uh, but it's also a presidency like none other. And we wanted to use our skills as journalists to try to document uh, in as much gripping detail as we possibly could uh, what really went on behind the scenes. And we think we did that uh, with I Alone Can Fix It. And in a way, it, it builds on um, the work that our, you know, our revered colleague and, and mentor Bob Woodward has done over the years with different presidents going all the way back to Nixon. Um, he's the king at this, at, at reconstructing in, in granular cinematic detail uh, what happens behind the scenes in the American presidency. And, and we just used our skills as journalists and our knowledge about Trump and our, and our source network uh, in the Trump administration to, to do that in this case for what was a historic final year. Are there any of those sources who you spoke with from the Trump administration while writing this that maybe surprised you or that might surprise me or our listeners? You know, there were there were plenty of surprises, um, you know, things that we learned. And, and by the way, I'm not many of the sources we spoke to 
uh, we did so on the condition of anonymity, meaning, sure. you know, we obviously knew who they were uh, and spoke to them as real people. They're real sources, but we are protecting them. We're not revealing their identities or who they are um, in our book because they could face very severe repercussions, um, not only from Trump, but from from his allies and his supporters. Uh, but there were some surprising things that we learned in our reporting about certain figures uh, in the government, including General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he's the highest ranking military officer in the country. And he was so fearful, uh, as and you referenced this earlier in one of your questions, so fearful of Trump's rhetoric uh, after the election and intentions after the election that he actually feared uh, the president would, would issue an order uh, to the military to use the troops uh, in some sort of a coup to hang on to power despite having lost the election. After maybe somebody reading this book, you know, let's say Republicans reading this book, is it possible for them to deny any of the horrors of the last 12 months of his presidency from maybe ignoring parts of the pandemic to actually trying to overthrow the government? Like, is there I mean, there's a lot of facts in here that are just uh, uh, jaw dropping, you know, what I mean, and it just uh, to me is appalling for an American president to to act this way and also uh, maybe take no, no action on some things as well. Um, you know, do you, do you think that Republicans can still deny the true history of everything that happened? You know, certainly a lot of people probably will deny the history of what happened in part because of their, you know, loyalty. You might even say blind loyalty to Trump. Uh, but it's not our it's not our place as journalists to tell them what to think. It is our place to arm them with facts. And that's what we try to do with this book. And, you know, I hope that every Trump supporter reads this book because we're uh, providing new information to them about uh, what really happened behind the scenes and about this president and, and what he did. And they may read this and decide, that's my guy. I like Trump. This is just vindication for me voting for Trump in 2016 and 2020. And that's okay. Um, we, we don't write this book to convince people that Trump's a bad guy. We write this book to tell people what Trump really did, and they can draw their own conclusions about whether that's the kind of president they want in this country or not. This is Phil, a real journalist. Like this is a real journalist, a person who doesn't mind actually telling it like it is. Like this is truth, and I appreciate you yeah. for that. Thank you so much. Um, you you interviewed Trump after the Capitol insurrection, and he called rioters uh, described as. Uh, I guess the terrorists is, is loving. Uh, what does that indicate you about Trump's intentions in the time period after the election? You know, he described the crowd on January 6th as loving, as hugging and kissing. That's, of course, not what the crowd was. We all saw this play out uh, on live television. There's video footage. Uh, these were violent people um, using weapons against police officers and against other people. Uh, it was a horrific uh, act, uh, what occurred on January 6th. But I think Trump is trying to whitewash what happened and create sort of this dystopian view, this alternate reality in his head and in the heads of his supporters about the election, about the allegations of fraud, which have not been proven, but which Trump advances nonetheless, and about the insurrection on January 6th. And I think, you know, one of his motivations in doing this is be that he wants to potentially run for president again. Uh, he's made clear he's interested in being a candidate in 2024. He remains the leader of the Republican Party today. 
you know, if the election, if the primaries were held tomorrow, he would probably win them and be the Republican nominee. And so I think he's very, uh, very much trying to kind of lay a foundation for him to run again. And I guess last question, what do you think happens to him next before 2024, let's say in the next year or two? What what do you think is going to happen to him next? Is he going to be expanding his business? Is he going to be prosecuted? Like, what do you think the road looks like to him? Well, uh, certainly he has worries about prosecution and about um, about his business fortunes. Just look at the two. Uh, the, the, the investigations underway uh, up in New York. That's very troubling for the Trump organization. But and and I'm no expert in that or or in his businesses. I'm not sure where that's all going to lead. Um, but I think Trump's priority, frankly, is his politics and uh, and and trying to stay relevant, trying to remain the king of the Republican Party. And you know, if it if if doing so means he'll run for president again, then I think he will run again. The book is I Alone Can Fix It. Go buy it now. It's a must read. And I don't say that very often, even about the guests that come on to promote their books. Um, So for me to say that, that is rare. So go buy it. The link will be in the episode's notes. Phil Rucker, thank you. And keep up the brilliant journalism. We appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate talking to you. and, uh, And I hope your listeners enjoy the book. Thanks again to Philip Brucker for doing the interview. We appreciate your time and for writing the book, obviously. Thanks to the best producer in the business. You can follow him at Grant Stern on Twitter. Thanks to Ben and Sam for your help on this episode. Couldn't do it without you either. And most importantly, thank you for taking the time to listen. We know the road's been long. We're all marathon runners by now. But just want you to know as we've run on this journey together, we're going to continue Mondays and Thursdays every week to release new episodes and keep you apprised as to what's going on in the world. But just know, we couldn't do it without you. But as long as we're together, we'll make it through this. You can visit our website at workandreport.com for more episodes. Be well, do good, 